It's Tuesday, March 11th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Mark Reith, and joining me in studio from Fool One, Morgan Hazel, and from Million Dollar Portfolio, Mike Olson. Gentlemen, happy Tuesday. Howdy. Hello. We've got a lot to get to today, including the great debate over eBay's future. But we begin with a grab bag of retail news. Let's start with Dick's Sporting Goods, which is up today after announcing fourth quarter and full year earnings. Did you guys have any highlights from the port? What did you think of Dick's? You know, I, I I really was. I've not ever spent much time looking at this company, and it's quite impressive the growth story here. They managed to grow same store sales seven percent, earnings per share up eight percent, and this all amid an environment which has been pretty challenging for just about all retailers. Right. Um, and in their report, actually, they said they'll see double-digit growth in earnings, but their outlook is still under consensus estimates. Uh, again, like you said. Retail is just so tough these days. Why is it tough for Dick's Sporting Goods? I don't know. I mean, honestly, the the weather too. Like right. they should ostensibly speaking have been as affected by just about anyone else. Mm-hmm. I, you know, the bigger question here, I guess, management would attribute this to their focus on higher end, um, higher end athletic wares, mm. in that there's less competition on that end of the spectrum. Um, I sort of question the durability of their what, what structural advantages they have. This is a $5.8 billion company, top line. Um, are they ever really going to be able to exert meaningful influence over the large suppliers of athletic wares, the Nikes, the Adidas's, the New Balances of the world? I don't really know. I mean, I buy a lot of running shoes and I like to buy good ones because I value my knees. And I have this little loyalty club membership with my local running store. I like it, but in the end, all of my decisions are price-driven. I've bought – I'll buy shoes off of Amazon. I'll buy shoes from them. I don't care. Hmm. All right. Uh, speaking of struggling retailers, both American Eagle Outfitters and Urban Outfitters just scraped by with uh, earnings this quarter. They both said they're also cautious about the coming quarter. Morgan. What's your take on these retailers? Well, these are always tough industries to be in. I don't think there's any more fickle customer base that you can possibly think of than uh, than teenagers. I mean, they're constantly changing their styles. That's really tough for retailers mm-hmm. to get down uh, in general. Plus, uh, you know, you have companies like Abercrombie and Fitch that have notorious management issues going back years and years. So these are these are tough industries to be in. Something I'd say about retail in general, though, right now, this is just from a, a broad macro point of view, I guess. U.S. households have so much less debt than they did five years ago. As a percentage of income, it's about three percentage points, which is huge. It's several hundred dollars per month per yeah. household. That is that's good for consumer spending in general. You know, that's not a statement of whether this is going to trickle down to Abercrombie and Fitch or Dick Sporting Goods or whatnot. Right. But from a broad from a broad point of view, I think U.S. consumers are in the best shape that they've been in a long time. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think one thing that's very interesting when you observe these results um, is the target markets for for a company like American Eagle or Urban, and Morgan can certainly speak to this more eloquently than I can. They faced huge structural unemployment issues, and ostensibly speaking, this that's really not going to change. That's one area of the economy which is, has been sort of beleaguered, or beleaguered during the recovery phase. Um, and so you have to ask yourself, in addition to the, the huge challenges this business faces on account of the, the sort of fickle customer base they have, um, is, is the spending power of that customer base really going to recover to what it was historically? Uh, that, that, that's, that's a really good point. So what I said about U.S. households, that's 
uh, you know, on average and aggregate, but certainly when you're looking at young households, you know, the broad unemployment rate right now is 6.8%, I think. Mm-hmm. But the unemployment rate for young adults, uh, for, for, for young adults under age 25, say, is substantially higher mm-hmm. than that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's a good point. Well taken, Mike, that, you know, the, the, the segment in, for which these companies are going after uh, is still caught severely in our Great Depression, our Great Recession, I should say. Absolutely. Uh, in other retail news, JCPenney was up big this morning after a Citigroup analyst recommended it as a buy based on the strength of its turnaround. I got to say, I think turnaround is a strong word for JCPenney's trajectory right now. Maybe not sinking is a good way to put it. You know, Maybe this is one of Warren Buffett's classic uh, cigar butts where the company is dying, the company is, is slowly going out of business, but you, you can find a cigar butt off the ground, pick it up, and get one last puff out of it before it's done. Okay. Do you recommend maybe getting one last puff out of JCPenney? I would, I, I would not. Mm. Uh, it's generally not, not good for your health to pick up half-smoking cigars off the sidewalk. And I, I, I would say the same for your financial health with JCPenney. I'm liking this metaphor. Thank you. Warren Buffett, he's always got these metaphors. I think we talked about it last Last week with a Warren Buffett metaphor. We won't get into that, though, because that was a a metaphor of a different color. Finally, Macy's was up today on the back of an upgrade from Wells Fargo, pulling it up to outperform from market perform. The reason for the upgrade was that the analyst believes Macy's has won the battle of the mid-tier department stores in Q4. Do you guys agree? Um, I mean, I think when you look at what Macy's, how Macy's is executed relative to other department stores... uh, their record has indeed been admirable, and they've they've done a meaningful job of taking their market clout to negotiate attractive terms with designers of of these sort of mid tier uh, fashion goods. Hmm. I I guess if if you wanted to take a bigger picture view of the industry in the segment, um, I don't know that I want to bet on any of those horses because the reality is customers can walk out of those doors about as quickly as they've walked or as quickly as they've walked into them. Mm. And so Macy's, the durability of its competitive advantages, whether or not it's going to make as much cash today as it did yesterday, I just, I don't know. Um. We've just mentioned five retailers and only one of them had any vaguely positive comments. (laughs) Do you guys have is there anyone out there in clothing retail that you guys like or retail in general? Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I can't think of one myself. <laughs> and, uh, it, the, these, these companies are not only uh, beholden to fickle taste, but it's so fiercely cutthroatly competitive these mm. days. In any industry that is as competitive as, real t- as retail is, margins quickly get whittled down right. to, uh, to low, meaningless re- uh, amounts. So it's, it's a tough industry to make money in. Is that why Amazon is the only pick in retail right now? Yes, and part of that reason is effectively because the market re- basically allows Amazon to run 0% margins. Right. They allow that. With other companies, they, the you know, markets and investors don't allow that. Hmm. But since Amazon can get away with it, it's, it's going to get away with it by keeping prices as low as it can and, and driving those companies into a tough corner. Right. I think I think there are maybe two retailers I like. Um, and the first is Costco, which is not necessarily a fashion retailer, but they do indeed I think have durable competitive advantages in, you know, the strength of their membership model. Mm. Um, basically allows them to sell merchandise much more cheaply than anyone else does. And so they only – where a Target or Walmart does 25 percent gross margin on their merchandise, um, Costco only does about 10.5 percent hmm. margins on their merchandise. And they stock fewer goods and 
require attractive terms from their vendors on those goods. There's kind of a virtuous cycle there. The customers like the savings they get and they come back. That allows them to raise the membership fee in time. Um, so it's a nice sort of recurring cash flow dynamic for a retailer. The other one that I would say I think has been exceptionally well run um, and certainly is interesting, but although they do face all of the challenges we have, is Nordstrom. Um, hmm. They've sort of established themselves as the the affordable luxury purveyor of choice. Hmm. And if you look at their sales per square foot, their inventory turns, and their returns on invested capital relative to other retailers, they're really just absolutely stellar. And I think what that comes down to is I don't really think of them as a a retailer per se so much as I do a curator of fashion goods. What they've been able to do is they acquire and get rid of inventory from the high-end designers at will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, those attractive terms and the extent to which they have been nimble in terms of their merchandising strategy has really paid dividends over the long run. Hmm. Good to know. All right. Before we get into our big discussion, it was announced last night that Chiquita Brands International, a name I'm sure you've all known if you've ever eaten a banana, and Irish fruit company Fife's agree to a $1.7 billion merger. Mike, that's a whole lot of bananas. What's this going to do to my morning fruit intake? You know, I it, it's very, very hard to say. Um, if this deal does go through, about 80% of global market share in bananas will be held by four <laughs> players. Now, Morgan knows this stat. The magic number among economists is when you get four players holding 80% of market share, that's when you've got an oligopoly. Hmm. Um, and so the open question here is the extent to which the banana purveyors, if you want to call them that, will start acting as rational agents. Are they going to emphasize price over volumes? Are they going to stop competing for market share? If you look at the history of the banana industry, now, what what is interesting here is this really basically just adds 7%, uh, 7 percentage points. No, not 7 percentage points, but 7%. Chiquita's market share goes from, I think, 22 to 29%, the hmm. journal reported. So is that such a, a such a sea change that you're going to see the banana industry behaving rationally? I don't really know. Their history of profitability is not great, but it's certainly interesting. So this is one where I guess I guess you might say the jury's still out. For the time, the rule of thumb in commodity companies is you buy when the cycle is bad and uh, investors are expecting bad things from them. Not many people have looked into the history of the banana industry. That's why we keep Mike Olson around. I was going to say, uh, the sentence, the history of the banana industry. Oh my gosh, just fascinating stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Morgan, you're eating a banana right now. I am. Do you have anything to say it's about bananas? It's not a chiquita. It's a, uh, it's oh. a Whole Foods Costa Rican Rainforest Alliance certified banana. That's so maybe this is outside of the <laughs> banana monopoly that my we've been God, talking about. A rubble well, banana. That's the other thing that's really interesting about this deal, actually, which is that if you're Chiquita, Dole, or Fresh Del Monte and you're negotiating with banana farmers, mm-hmm. I mean, they, they, they really hold a lot of the cards. And so there, there is a clear strategic merit in doing that. Mm. Um, banana madness. Banana economics. It's mm. bananas. Bananas. <laughs> oh, I'm so uh. sorry for that pun. All Ooh. right. 
For our final topic today, we wanted to talk about the kerfuffle going on between eBay and Carl Icahn. Now, for those of you who haven't heard, and I don't know how you haven't, activist investor Carl Icahn has been pressuring eBay to spin off its PayPal unit into a separate company, believing that its potential is wasted as part of eBay. eBay's management, especially Mark Andreessen and John Donahoe, disagree, and things are starting to get pretty heated. In fact, Icahn went on CNBC the other week and said that eBay has some of the worst corporate governance he's ever seen, and he's accused Andreessen of giving away Skype a few years ago so that he and his private equity friends can make a quick buck. Yesterday, eBay rejected Carl Icahn's two nominees to its board. The overall question here, with all that history in mind, is Icahn right? Is PayPal better off without eBay? Is eBay better off without PayPal? Well, look, to the extent to which eBay is better off without PayPal or vice versa, I I, I don't have any comment on that. But what I'll Hmm. say in general for these is that I'm all for shareholder rights. I think that's a phenomenal thing. But the history of hedge funds... Uh, trying to uh, have clout within companies doesn't have a very good history because hedge funds almost by nature, by definition, take a short-term view to these things. So they might have very different priorities than long-term investors, uh, long-term business managers. The best example of this with Carl Icahn, as people said, is with Apple Hmm. and how the world has been robbed of the opportunity to watch how Steve Jobs would have reacted to a hedge fund manager telling him how to run his business in the short term, what he should do with his cash. Man, that would have been been a fantastic. (laughs) And I think that's really true. And, you know, whether we can extend that to eBay and Mike will have some comments on that, but I, I always get suspicious when activist hedge funds are trying to um, you know, make changes and tell, tell management different ways to do their job. And that, always, that always raises an eyebrow for me. Well, let's get specific about it. Carl Icahn has a pretty good track record as far as- He has a track record investment. of making short-term money for himself. Okay. Does he, have an, does he have a good track record of making money for companies over a 10 or 20-year period? You tell me. No, <laughs> it's, it, it's very interesting because I think I think Morgan really hits it on the head here, which is that there is a distinct misalignment of interest um, in terms of what what the the activist hedge fund manager is seeking um, and what shareholders are looking for. But there are a subset of of shareholders or activist hedge funds, you might argue, which are intelligent about this. There's an interesting paper that I, I dug up on SSRN. Um, it's an academic paper which looked at the history of companies that were the subject of aggressive activism and their- More exciting than history of bananas. How you. dare you, Morgan? Nothing is more exciting than I, the history I can't, of bananas. I can't imagine it. Um, but basically, companies that were the subject of aggressive shareholder activism, and this is kind of the variety where you, know, you have- uh, letters being sent back and forth, mudslinging, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. They outperformed the market not only in the year that followed, but the, I think it was either the five or seven year period which followed, which I found very interesting. Um, that being said, I think when you look at like the history of the business or when you look at just operating a business, I don't know if this necessarily advances the goals because you have a John Donahoe be focused on responding to criticisms from Carl Icahn. In the case of PayPal and eBay, um, I think that there is a good case for, for splitting the two up. It's very difficult to determine where that that sort of discrete point in time is. For the time, it makes a lot of sense to use the eBay cash cow to subsidize growth and investment in PayPal. Right. That being said, there's going to come a logical point where you know, PayPal is operating at scale and 
its relationship with eBay inhibits its ability to establish other meaningful customer relationships. Um, Right now, I think you can make a pretty good case that they are operating at scale, Hmm. big operating uh, margins, and also of interest, um, Elon Musk, the uh, CEO um, of Tesla and SpaceX, co-founder of PayPal, actually came out and said that it makes no sense for PayPal to be tethered to eBay's marketplace segment. Hmm. I think that kind of speaks for itself. Fair enough. What does he know about business success? <laughs> so would you invest in a standalone PayPal? Is it the best payment uh, system in the game right now, do you think? I don't know that it necessarily is the best payment system in the game, but I do think there's meaningful growth potential. Hmm. Um, it's It would be quite a riddle to go ahead and figure out because uh, I guarantee you it wouldn't come off cheap. Um, mm. That being said, I do think it can be a stellar growth story on a, on a secular basis. Absolutely. All right, something to watch for. Morgan Housel, Michael Olson, guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Mark Reith. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>